so let's pray. Anyway, Father, thank you that uh, you have brought us together this morning to celebrate your life. Thank you, Lord, that we can celebrate the fact that you are alive and you're seated at the right hand of the throne of our Father. Pray, Father, that you would uh, just allow me to speak what you would have today and trust the Holy Spirit that you will come and uh, minister to all of us. And um, so we just lift this prayer up in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Amen. Well, I don't know whether you can see there's some writing on the board. I'm not too good of a penman, so uh, I'll have to translate it for you a little bit as we go along. Um, today we're going to talk about covenant. And I've been, I've been studying this for a long time, especially the last two or three weeks since I knew I was going to be speaking on it. And the more I study it, the bigger it gets. And uh, so hopefully I've reduced it down to what we can talk about today. Most of what we're going to do is read from Scripture. And I've just taken some little bits from the Old Testament all the way to the, to the Hebrews. Um, and so I'm going to be doing a good bit of reading. But first, I want to talk about what covenant really is. Covenant's not a contract. It's not anywhere close to a contract. I'm not sure when it was, but years ago when they were translating the Bible, um, it's actually a book of two covenants. And they translated covenant into testament. And so I think that leaves a little bit to be desired. Uh, if you go look up covenant and testament, it's just really kind of confusing. But a covenant, a covenant is the giving of one's whole person and life to another. And it's the same thing for the person they give it to. It's two people who are coming together to become one. So um, I've made a little, uh, a little list here. As far as I can understand, uh, Primitive tribes have been practicing covenant, covenant from for years and years and years back. There's a, some writing from a guy named Trumbull in the 18th century who wrote about these uh, two guys. One was named uh, Stanley and one Livingston. Dr. Livingston was from England, and he was in um, Africa trying to find out where the Nile River started. So he crisscrossed Africa back and forth, and as he did, he encountered all these tribes. Stanley went looking for him. He was a reporter, and he was going to report back. The English people thought that he was dead, and uh, so uh, Stanley finally caught up with Livingston and uh, uh, found out he was still kicking. Um, their experience in Africa was that they ran into lots of tribes who had made covenant with each other. There was one tribe that was real powerful, and um, uh, Livingston had uh, gone there and was kind of afraid of them. Uh, they were stealing some of his stuff out of his, uh, from his, his group that was traveling through Africa. And so his interpreter uh, said, look, why don't you make a covenant with that guy? And he wasn't sure, didn't know what that was. And so finally he talked him into it. And uh, Livingston was not real well. And the only thing he could drink was goat's milk. 
and he had a goat that he really loved and he got milk from it. So the, the king of this tribe, head of this tribe, wanted the goat. And so the guy said, look, that'll be perfect. You can make covenant with him. So he made covenant with him and here's what happened. Stanley, and, I mean, Livingston and the chief both, both chose, a re, chose a representative and that representative represented them. They cut their wrists, kind of gross with a lot of the uh, covenants in uh, the third world country. They actually drank each other's blood. Um, so they made covenant and um, wherever Livingston went after that, if he would get to a tribe that was kind of dangerous, if they saw this spear that the uh, tribe leader had given him, it had uh, copper on top of it, and wherever he went, if they saw that, they would almost worship him. They'd take care of him, they'd feed him, anything he wanted. So that's kind of what covenant is. I want to just go through this real quick, and we'll see it some as we read through the scriptures. Um, there's tribe A and tribe B here. Usually there's a lesser tribe that wants to make a covenant with a stronger tribe in order for protection. So they would all choose a representative and these two representatives would get together and the tribes would make an agreement. They would write down an agreement that they're gonna go by. They would trade coats and weapons. When they traded coats and weapons, they were saying, Everything that I have now belongs to you. And here's my weapon. I'll never, I'll never attack you. I'll always watch your back. And I'm going to take care of you. Then they would exchange names. So Tribe A would no longer be known as Tribe A. It would be known as Tribe B-A. And Tribe B would now be known as Tribe B-A. They would trade names. Um, then they would go through the cutting of their wrists. They would cut their wrists and mingle their blood together. We've all heard about the American Indians calling themselves blood brothers. Well, that's what they did. Uh, some of the traditions of the Indians are so grotesque, I don't even want to talk about it. Um, but they would cut their wrists, they'd mingle the blood together, and then they would say, we are blood blubber, blood, blood blubbers? <laughs> blood brothers. <laughs> and so their blood would flow into each other. and. Uh, they would be blood brothers. Um, then they would cut an animal in two, and they'd put that animal down and put the two halves, and the two representatives would walk between those halves. And if you can see this right here, when they walk between those halves, what is the sign that that makes? Infinity. No beginning and no end. It was for, forever. It was from now on. And then they would have the cursings and the blessings. They would say, if you break this covenant, then you're cursed. If you keep it, you'll be blessed. Um, the breaking of a covenant meant that someone had to die. And so a representative of one of these tribes that broke the covenant would have to share their blood. They'd have to die. Then they had a covenant meal where they'd all sit down together and they would celebrate and, uh, and affirm the covenant. Then they usually plant some trees or have a, uh, some cattle or something that they would uh, set aside so that they could remember the covenant in generations to come. So with that in mind, um, uh, 
want to look at uh, some scripture. In ages past, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit dreamed of having a family to share their life with. So God created the heavens and the earth, and on the sixth day, he created man in his own image. And we know what happened after that. God had planted trees in the garden, and he said, eat of any tree you want, but when you eat of this tree, you'll surely die. So Adam and Eve ate of that tree, and they found themselves naked, and they ran from God. From the beginning, the initiative for salvation has come from God alone. Humans have not asked for salvation. All through the whole Bible, it's a story of men running from God and God going after us. As Billy Graham would say, the hound of heaven uh, keeps coming after us because he loves us, not because he's mad. Adam nor Eve, after the fall, showed any sign of repentance. They actually ran from God. They ran and hid from him because they, they were afraid. And uh, God says, why are you hiding? He said, well, I'm afraid. I'm, I'm naked and I'm afraid. And God said, who told you that? And I think that's something that we get to hear a whole lot when the accusers, accuser comes to us and accuses us of something. God says, who told you that? So in the garden, God announced the covenant he would make with the whole human race in Adam. He said, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. There was nothing for man to do other than simply receive the covenant that God was making. God left nothing for man to do. So after that, we know that the human race began to move further and further away from God. You get down to Nimrod going to build a tower that was going to reach heaven and uh, man trying to find life by himself apart from God. In Genesis 6, 17, says, And behold, I myself am bringing floodwaters on the earth to destroy from under heaven all flesh in which the breath of life, everything that is on earth, shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall go into the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. So the floods come and wipe out all life on earth, and then God comes to Noah and he says, Thus I will establish my covenant with you. Never again shall all flesh be cut off from the, flood, from the waters of the flood. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is a sign of the covenant which I make between me and you and every living creature that's with you for perpetual generations. I set my rainbow in the cloud and it shall be the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. And I'll remember my covenant, which is between me and you and every living creature of flesh. But waters shall never again become a flood to destroy the flesh. It's interesting again to see that 
God took the initiative. He just took care of Noah. Noah had nothing to do with it other than obeying God and building the ark and then getting in it, you know. So there comes along a man later on named Abraham. And um, Abraham brought all these things to him and cut them in two. I might have skipped a page. I did. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. He says, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield and your very great reward. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I have remained childless and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him and said, This man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and said, Look up, look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And Abraham believed the Lord, and it was credited to him as righteousness. It's interesting that the word believe there means to give oneself wholly up. So Abraham gave himself to God in utter abandonment. You see the covenant? He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of the Ur of Chaldees to give you this land and to take possession of it. But Abraham said, Sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possessions of it? So the Lord said to him, bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with the dove and young pigeons. Abraham brought all these things to him, cut them in two, and arranged them in halves op opposite for each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Then birds of prey came down to the carcasses, but Abraham drove them away. I wonder who sent the birds of prey to eat the carcasses up. It wasn't God. So Abraham drove the, old, the buzzards away. And the sun was setting. Abraham fell into a deep sleep and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country that not their own and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for this sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. That's a topic for another time. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot, pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. You see this? That was the presence of the Holy Spirit moving to move between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, with Abram, I'm sorry, and said to your descendants, I give this land from the Wadi of Egypt to the great river of the Euphrates, the land of the Kenizzites, and I'm not going to pronounce the rest of those words. It's just there if you want to look at it. 
in Genesis 17, uh, when, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me faithfully and be blameless. Then I will make my covenant between me and you and will greatly increase your numbers. Abraham fell down <clears throat> and God said to him, as, as for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram. Your name will be called Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. Remember this? The tribes exchanged names. Here's Abram, and God says, now I want your name to be Abraham. It sounds a lot like Elohim. Does that make sense? <clears throat> so I will make you fruitful. Where did I stop? I'll make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you, and kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. The whole land of Canaan, where you now reside as a foreigner, I will give as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you, and I will be their God. You remember God told Adam and Eve in the garden that his her seed would bruise his head and he would bruise his hell. The, the seed that, that God was talking about we see all through the Old Testament finally coming to fruition when Jesus comes. Then God said to Abraham, as for you, you must keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you for generations to come. This is my covenant with you and your descendants after you, the covenant you are to keep. Every male among you must be circumcised. You would undergo circumcision, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and you. God left one thing for Abraham to do, and that was cut off the foreskin of the reproduction organ of a man. And we could talk for a long time about what that means, but it was a sign that, Ab that God asked Abraham to do, even with every male child that was born, to remember the covenant that God had made with him. You would undergo circumcision. It will be a sign of the covenant between me and you. God also said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you're no longer to call her Sarai, but Sarah. And there's her name changed. I will bless her and will surely give you a son by her. I will bless her so that she will be the mother of nations. <clears throat> Kings of people will come from her. Abraham fell face down. He laughed and said to himself, Will a son be born to a man 100 years old? Will Sarah bear a child at 99? Well, uh, it's interesting that uh, when God came to visit their tent, Sarah laughed too. <coughs> God said, why do you laugh? She said, well, I didn't laugh. He said, yes, you did. So they named their son Isaac. You know what Isaac means? Laughter. So every time they called Isaac, it was like saying, hey, ha, 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 come here. <laughs> oh, so God says, by myself have I sworn an oath for because thou hast done this thing and has not withheld thy son, thine only son, that in blessing I will bless thee 
and in multiplying I will multiply thy seed as the stars of heaven and as the sand on the seashore. And your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. This is God speaking to Abraham after he took Isaac up on the mountain to offer him as a sacrifice. God has said, you take your son, your only son that you leave, you love, and I want you to bring him up and sacrifice him. We all know the story of that. And God, when Abraham was ready to sacrifice him, God said, stop, and there was a ram in the bulrushes. You see that? For us, there was somebody else there for us instead of us. His name is Jesus. After that, this guy named Moses comes along. 400 years after this, after Abraham's experience with God, and God, it's, it says in Exodus 2, 24, it says, God heard the groanings and remembered his covenant. These people had been in slavery and had been treated very badly for many, many years. And it says they cried out to God and God remembered his covenant. You know, the plagues that came along, we'll talk about that. Moses told Pharaoh, he said, let my people go. And then <clears throat> Pharaoh finally said, after all the plagues and all that, he said, look, take your people and get out of here. I don't even want to see you again. So the Passover, the Passover, God said for him to select a lamb on the 10th day of the month and on the 14th day, slaughter it at twilight. Eat the lamb, put the blood on the sides of, and top of the doorpost. Can you imagine having a bunch of kids and you bring this little lamb in your house for four days and they pet it, take care of it, love on it. And then at twilight on the fourth day, you have to cut its throat and you eat it and you put its blood on the doorpost. God says, do this for I will pass through the land of Egypt on the, that night and will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And against all the gods of, the, of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. Now the blood shall be a sign for you on the house where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over it. And the plague shall not be on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So this day shall be to you a memorial and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You shall keep it as a feast by an everlasting ordinance. And we know they kept that feast all the way up to when Jesus came. So <clears throat> they left Egypt, 600,000 men on foot. Men, and, uh, men, women, and children was probably a million and a half, two million. I think we, out in the desert, they probably reached three million people. That's a lot of people in it. So they crossed the Red Sea, and God gives them quail and manna to eat. Quail in the afternoon, manna in the morning. You know that story. So then we have the giving of the law to Moses. Moses goes, God calls Moses to go up on a mountain and he stays up there 40 days with God. He was gone so long, all the people decided, well, 
Moses has left us. What are we going to do? And so they talked Joshua into making a golden calf, and they began to worship it. Moses comes down, sees him. You know what happens. He breaks the Ten Commandments, and the people are just, they, nobody's seeking after God, nobody. So the rebellion happens, and in Exodus 34, after God gives Moses another set of tablets, and the Lord said, Behold, I make a covenant before all thy people. I will do marvelous things such as have never been seen or done in all the earth. So fast forward to uh, uh, David. God said to him, Do not fear, for I surely show your kindness for Jonathan, your father's sake, and will restore to you all the land of Saul. I'm, I skipped a page. Sorry. There it is. Excuse me. When God finished giving the commandments to Moses, well, the last thing he said was, Be careful not to make a covenant with those who live in the land. And there's an interesting little uh, story in Joshua, Joshua 9 and 10, where the children of Israel were camped and they had made covenant with God and they were going about to take over all these tribes. They were about to drive them out of the land. And um, there was a little tribe real close to where the Israelites were camping. And they put on old shoes, raggedy shoes, raggedy clothes, and they put food that had mold on it in their bags. And they approached the Canaanites. They came to, to Joshua and they said, uh, look, we're just real poor and, and, and we live far away and and uh, we're just afraid. We, we've heard about your God and what he does. And, and we just, we, we want to make covenant with you. So they tricked the Israelites, tricked Joshua into making a covenant with them. Well, a few days later, they found out a little tribe lived just a couple of hills over from them. And they had come to them to make a covenant. Tribe A, the little tribe, came to make a covenant with tribe B the strong tribe. Y'all getting bored? So all the people started grumbling and they said, look, we got to go kill them. You know, you've made a covenant. You shouldn't have done that. God said not to do it and you did it. And Joshua said, because, of, because we are in covenant with God, we're bound to keep this covenant we've made with these people. And then they got word that some tribes were about to attack them because they were upset. They had gone and made covenant with Israel, and then they were going to run over all these other little tribes. Well, <clears throat> when they came to Joshua, he said, no, because we're in covenant with God, we're now in covenant with these people, and we have to protect them. So they went out and destroyed the other tribe that were coming after them. It's the story of the day that the sun stood still and the moon. Remember that? Everything stood still so that they could be able to overpower that little nation. 
Then we have Jonathan and David. Jonathan and David made a covenant because of his love, because of the love that they shared together. And Jonathan took off the robe that was on him and gave it to David with his armor, even to his sword and his bow and his belt. Jonathan gave David his coat and his weapons and they made a covenant with each other. And they were saying, I'll keep this covenant forever. The story in uh, 2 Samuel, just one little line in, in, in 1 Samuel says that uh, this uh, kid that, of Jonathan's, uh, when Jonathan and David were killed in war, uh, normally what would happen is if the king was killed, the nation that overran them would come and destroy, kill all their family and everything. So Jonathan's uh, nursemaid or whatever she was, uh, was keeping the kids and she took this little boy named Mephibosheth and was trying to escape. They were trying to get away so they wouldn't be killed. And she fell down and she dropped him and he fell on the steps and broke his legs. She took him to a place called Lodibar, which was way out in the country, was, you know, far away from anybody so that no one could find him. She took him out there and, and um, they lived there for, I don't know how many years. Now, if you just read between the lines, what do you know about Mephibosheth? He was heir to the throne of Israel when his father was Jonathan. So probably people would tell him, hey man, you know, David's on the throne there. You better figure out a way to kill him so that you can take your rightful place. Well, Mephibosheth was, legs were broken. He was crippled, couldn't get around. So he probably just sat there and seethed his whole life. And then there's this passage in 2 Samuel. It says, Now David said, Is there still anyone who is left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? And there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. So when they called him, so when they had called him to David, the king said to him, Are you Ziba? He said, at your service. Then the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul to whom I may show kindness of God? And Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan uh, who is lame in his feet. So the king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, Indeed, he is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, in Lodabar. Then King David sent and brought him out of the house of Mekir, Machir, whatever his name was, the son of Amiel from Lodabar. You can imagine this. David's soldiers going to Lodabar, this little old town, and they drive up there and they say, we're looking for Mephibosheth. Uh-oh. I mean, the fear of God was in him, huh? Scared to death, he's fixing to get killed. So King David sent and brought out of the house of Machar of Lodabar. Now when Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, <clears throat> had come to David, 
he fell on his face and prostrated himself. Then David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Here is your servant. So David said to him, Do not fear, for I will surely show you kindness for Jonathan, your father's sake, and will restore to you all the land of Saul, your grandfather, and you shall eat bread at my table. Then he bowed down himself and said, What is your servant that you should look at, upon him as a dead dog as I? I want to tell you what, that's a picture of us, isn't it? That's a picture of the lie that has been spread about God all these years, all these years, that we should be afraid of him. And yet, Mephibosheth is about to inherit everything that belongs to his, his father, Jonathan. And the kings called Ziba, <clears throat> Ziba Saul's servant and said to him, I have given to your master's son all that belonged to Saul and to all his house. You, therefore, and your sons and your servants shall work the land for him, and you shall bring in harvest that your master's son may have food to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's son, shall eat bread at my table always. Now, Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Can you imagine Mephibosheth sitting down at David's table one morning, about to have eggs, and somebody across the table looked at him and said, what are you doing here? And David said, see this? He's here because of a covenant that I made with his father. And you don't mess with him. He's here to eat at my table from now on. Well, the whole Old Testament is God reaching out to people who were rebellious and they were running from him, just like Adam in the garden. The covenant promises continue with the details that that would be continued in the covenant. <clears throat> Jeremiah 31 says, But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they all shall know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. I will remember no more. You notice, it, it's almost like the covenant words of God are always, I will do this. He didn't need to prove anything to anybody. He was the God who was calling his children to himself, who were running from him, who were listening to the lie. In Ezekiel 36, it says, Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. <clears throat> I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will keep my judgments and do them. We're going to leave the New Testament and go to the 
the Old Testament and go to the New. Uh, it seemed like God just led me to Hebrews, so uh, we're going to skip a whole lot of stuff there and that you already know about. But in Hebrews 6, it says, For when God made a promise to Abraham because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely, blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply you. And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise, for men indeed swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is for them an end of all dispute. Thus God determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel confirmed by an oath that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation or have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. The two immutable things, I've often wondered, what is that? The two immutable things, I think, was the promise and the oath of God that could never change because he's God. This hope we have is an anchor of our soul, both sure and steadfast, which enters the, and which enters the presence behind the veil, where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, having become high priest for forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. The former regulation is set aside because it was weak and useless, for the law made nothing perfect, and a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. I think Denise is going to talk about this next week, right? <laughs> and it was not without an oath. Others became priests without an oath. But he became a priest with an oath when God said, The Lord is sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. Because of this oath, Jesus has become the guarantor of a better covenant. Now there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Isn't that wonderful? You already said he's able to save us completely. Mm. Such a high priest truly meets our need, one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. <clears throat> Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then of the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. For the law appoints as high priests men in all their weakness, but the oath... God's oath, which came after the law, appointed the Son who had been made perfect forever. But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come, with the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands, that is, not <clears throat> of the creation, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. 
For if the blood of bulls and goats and ashes of heifers, sprinkling unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And for this reason, he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death for redemption for the transgressions under the first covenant, that those who are called may receive the promise of an eternal inheritance. Oh. Excuse me. Hebrews 9 says, when, <clears throat> But when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with hands, that is to say, is not a part of this creation. He did not enter by means of blood and goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his blood, by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and ashes of heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? For this reason, Christ is the mediator of the new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. In the case of a will, it is necessary to prove the death of the one who made it. Because a will is in force only when somebody has died. It never takes effect while the one who made it is living. This is why, <coughs> excuse me, even the first covenant was not put into effect without blood. When Moses had proclaimed every command of the law to all the people, he took the blood of calves together with water, scarlet wool, and branches of hyssop, and sprinkled the scroll and all the people. Can you imagine how bloody that was back then? Everything was sprinkled with blood. He said, this is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you to keep. In the same way he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and everything used in his ceremonies. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. See that? It was necessary then for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these sacrifices, but the heavenly things themselves were better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with human hands, that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again, the way high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But he has now appeared once for all at the culmination of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. 
Just as people were destined to die once and after that for judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many. And he will appear a second time not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Mm. Therefore, when he came into the world, he said, Sacrificing offering, offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. And burnt offerings and sacrifice for sin you had no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come in the volume of the book. It is written of me to do your will. The volume of the book. The whole book is about Jesus from the very beginning to the end. It's the seed that came through Eve that was <clears throat> brought, God brought it all the way through the human race and finally culminated in Jesus. Previously saying, sacrifice and offerings, burnt offerings and offerings for sin, you did not desire, nor, you, nor had pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first, that he may establish the second. By that will we have been sanctified, set apart, through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Period. And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sin. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sin forever, sat down at the right hand of God, from that time waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. But the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us. For after he had said before, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws in their hearts and in their minds, and I will write them. Then he adds, their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now where, these, now where there is remission of these, there's no longer an offering to sin. No need. Therefore, brethren, have boldness to enter the holiest of, by the blood of Jesus by a new and living way which he concentrated, consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh and having a high priest over the house of God. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us <clears throat> consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another so much the more as you see the day approaching. So, the story of the human race is written in Romans chapter 3. Paul says, there's no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands. There's no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There's no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. 
Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. In the way of peace, they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Sounds a lot like the world we live in today, doesn't it? Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, <coughs> excuse me, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. Now, why is it there's so much teaching out there that you've got to go serve God, you've got to go do something for God? That's not what it says here. It says no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. The righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of His blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate His righteousness because in His forbearance He had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate His righteousness at the present time so that as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. So Jesus is God coming to where we are, joining us in our lost condition, taking to himself our death, and through the new covenant, inviting us into intimate fellowship.